started going down department stores, literally looking at who are all the brands that they carry and how many of those brands are designers of color and realized that less than 1% at the time were designers of color. And I was like, okay, this is it. I have to at least try to be a part of the solution. Hello, strangers. And welcome back to You Have to Wear Something. I have been swamped by day gigs. So sorry for the long absence. I've got a few cool interviews heading my way soon as well. But dress code, dress code, dress code. I think there needs to be a conversation around what dress code expectations were before and after the pandemic and you know where do they lie now what is professional attire and what isn't should it represent the times should it express your personality what does a dress code say about race gender and class when i was applying for fashion magazine internships many many moons ago It was understood that you would wear the designer does that are featured in those magazines, which immediately excluded, let's be frank, poor black and brown women from ever being able to work a year for free in Gucci and Chanel. Of course, the kids of wealthy folks had access to these coveted roles. But eventually you get a job and the conversation begins again on what's professional and what's not. It's a topic that has come up often as I navigate a luxury goods industry, startup culture, and just corporate wardrobe in general. What's professional? Well, if you Google professional hair, a lot of white women will pop up in the Google search. And if you're black like moi, you cannot properly execute white woman professional hair. And we have definitely tried through presses and perms, And it's never enough. It's never enough manipulation or assimilation to your common white leader. Okay, forget hair. It's now illegal to regulate black women's hair. And so let's move on to the body. Let's talk about women's bodies. Did you know that women make 20 to 40% less money than men on the dollar? Personally, as a black woman, I make 63 cents on the dollar. But women spend about $1,200 or more on their professional clothes per year, more than men. Not to mention makeup that most men, not all, but most skip altogether. Most men are not getting mani-pedis for work. We definitely are. So there's a ton of imbalance there. I will say that fashion companies do provide seasonal clothing and shoes for employees and they also dry clean them. That's actually law in California that if you provide a uniform, you also have to clean it on the employee's behalf. But LVMH, a caring group, a Gucci group, they can afford to do that. Not so much at startups. We're going to get to what's deemed professional in a minute, but what irks my nerves, because at this point we have all proven that you can drive revenue from home in your PJs. 
So with the return to work or hybrid situations, the dress code convo begins again. And hey, I am the person saying hell to the no. Do not wear your PJs to the airport or sweats to work. Too far. But I know with that with all this COVID weight gain and work from home culture, people have grown more comfortable and casual. And with that, the entire apparel industry has had to adjust to this new, smart, comfortable, casual. Brooks Brothers literally went bankrupt. One issue I have is the lines have been blurred between luxury and premium dressing. Chanel is a luxury bag and Monster Gabrielle or Building Block is a premium bag. LV luggage, luxury. Away luggage is premium. So you have to know your lane before you start making requests. I have had requests to appear quote unquote luxurious at a place that sold premium products. Tesla, for, in for instance. It's just not a luxury environment. We sell electric cars and that's that. They're premium cars, they're not luxury cars. Dressing for work has dramatically changed because our lives were dramatically changed in 2020. There may be good intentions behind setting a professional dress code for your workplace. However, dress codes have and continue to be used as tools of oppression. It's important to recognize the historical influence of racism attached to these workplace standards. Traditional dress codes work to police certain kinds of bodies. They ensure that employees follow the practices of the dominant culture, which is white culture. Under the guise of professionalism, dress codes tend to punish marginalized groups of employees for refusing to conform. The hilarious thing is that Zuckerberg popularized the billionaire genius in a hoodie. And in general, the Silicon Valley bro gets to show up as is in whatever free t-shirt he received at the latest conference and code casually to his heart's content. On the surface, dress codes seem to only focus on styles of, styles of clothing. And so they are treated as neutral colorblind measures. When considering the groups of people that have adopted certain styles, baggy clothing, athletic attire, and brimless headgear like do-rags and bandanas, for example, it's clear that these policies target the dress of some cultures more than others. Black employees continue to be disproportionately impacted by workplace dress codes. When trying to set a dress code for your workplace, consider having a diverse decision-making group compose your guidelines. Was there any black or brown people involved when the dress code was created? You already know probably not. Representation matters. Identity, diverse decision-making groups are better equipped to protect against racist enforcement of stereotypes and biases. Employees shouldn't have to conform to the norms of the dominant culture, AKA whiteness, in order to succeed in the workplace. A business suit isn't what makes a good employee. They hearken back to a time when manners and civility were weaponized to clearly define us and them. They stem from the Victorian period in England, where they were designed to help those in power draw a clear line between God's chosen elites and commoners. 
They were a means of social control to create clear categories between people, between the powerful and the powerless. Today, the us are upper class, white, male, cis heterosexuals, and the them are the rest of us, the other, those in desperate need of policing. Today, unless you work in a creative industry, you probably felt that your individuality and sense of self were crushed, not just by the soul-sucking work you do from nine to five, but by small conservative dress codes with a slight respite on casual Fridays. No shorts on men, no exposed toes or heels, no jeans, no shoulders, and in some offices, no colors that are not navy, black, or white. Often the company line is that they like the attire of all drones, I mean employees, to be uniform and professional in order to promote a productive workplace and maintain public image. However, these policies just end up being oppressive and reproduce racism, sexism, classism, fat phobia, and harmful gender norms and binaries. Enter any Catholic church and you'll be hit with a strict dress code, but just for women. No shoulders and no knees, no matter what the thermometer says. Though these waspy Judeo-Christian values can be traced to an earlier time, their remnants can be seen today and not just in church. Even at your local accounting firm, women's bodies are sexualized. Even a shoulder is deemed too damn enticing. These rules just reinforce the belief that there is something inherently wrong with women's bodies, while also bolstering the idea that the sexual assault of women is somehow their fault. The sexualization of women's bodies is not women's problem, but the problem of those who interpret the sight of skin as a suggestion of sex. Weight discrimination in offices is rampant and plus size women are often told to cover up their curves even when wearing the exact same outfits as their thinner coworkers. This weight discrimination reinforces the society-wide notion that bigger bodies is reflected in other aspects of the workplace. Bigger workers are less likely to be promoted or receive a raise and earn less than their thinner counterparts. Trans workers face a different kind of dress code discrimination, not for wearing too much or too little, but for not allowing office dress codes to dictate their gender expression. While there has been some gains to allow women to wear pants and men to wear skirts, workplaces are still sites of social control through dress code for trans people. Most dress codes clearly delineate what is appropriate for men to wear and what is appropriate for women, leaving those whose gender differs from the other one they were assigned at birth and those who don't buy into the gender binary at odds with oppressive rules. Office dress codes do not allow for diverging from cultural norms or the full express expression of gender. Many trans people have had bad dress codes used to discriminate against them. Dress codes are just another tool used to maintain the status quo and keep the boot of oppression firmly on the neck of those not born white, cis, or male. Seemingly harmless, they are used to reinforce or rather reinforce rigid cultural norms and standards that are assumed universal. So, what's the key to a good dress code policy? The answer is trust. Trusting your employees to make intelligent decisions about what they wear to work is the key to building an inclusive and thriving work environment.
it may be tempting to make rules about what your employees can wear or what hairstyles are acceptable, but it's best to stay on the safe side. Your employees are smart people, capable of making decisions about what is and isn't appropriate for work. Trust them not to show up in anything that's considered to be inappropriate. If left unchecked, a discriminatory dress code policy can have impact on your entire company. Employee engagement, legal trouble, recruitment, and employee retention could all suffer from an outdated and discriminatory dress code policy. Now is the time to examine every part of your corporate policy to ensure you're not unintentionally discriminating against people. And until next time, peace.